Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to talk about chronic pain. It's a serious matter. It can affect all aspects of life, not only for those who have it, but also for everyone around them. Is the answer just pills, or could there be more to help those suffering from chronic pain? Well, today, right here in the studio, we have Dr. Daniel Lev. He is a behavioral specialist, chronic pain psychologist for over 20 years, and he is here talking about how to reframe the experience of chronic pain and turn it into one of learning how to pursue comfort. We're going to talk a little bit about that today and learn more about how any of us can take a look, see if there's some sort of pain we're experiencing, and find ways to to determine and develop some skills to help us to learn to focus more on the comfort aspects. So welcome, Dr. Daniel, the comfort doc, to The Body Show. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now let's start with some basics. What is pain? What is the pain experience? It's so personal. Different people experience it in different ways. And if you had to describe pain to someone, how would you do that? It hurts. Well, that's <laughs> a basic one. Yeah, okay. Pain hurts. Uh, definitely feels you feel uncomfortable. I, I think everyone knows what pain is. However, it's hard to differentiate between pain that can be fixed and pain that it's going to be there for a while. Um, the acute pain, you step on a attack. Okay, they both work similarly, at least initially. Uh, and the pain signals are generated. Eventually, uh, heads toward your your brain, and um, there's actually a a, uh, a gate in your spinal cord, uh, a special uh, neural gate that may leave out the, the signals or allow them in, depending on how you're how comfortable you are. So uh, with chronic pain, unfortunately, whatever the physical condition is, uh, it is not curable, and so it keeps generating pain. Although sometimes your nervous system can be, I'll use a technical term, out of whack. It's a little oh, out that's of, technical. It's okay. a little out of whack, and so it's generating a pain experience. And then how you respond to that may affect that, make it worse, make it better. Now, you know... Statistics show that one in three people has some sort of chronic pain condition. One in three. Are we good at taking care of chronic pain? Uh, Sad to say no, but we have the means. We we, we have the knowledge, and there are places that this knowledge is practiced uh, within what's called an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary uh, chronic pain program. I call mine a, a, a comfort skills program or my workshop as uh, a comfort workshop. But whatever name, the idea is that various professionals, particularly uh, a chronic pain psychologist, a physician, and physical therapist or some person that does functional restoration like a Feldenkrais professional or others, uh, can help the person from these various perspectives to get back to some kind of uh, more life of comfort. So what are some examples of chronic pain conditions? You've been in this field Mm -hmm. for over 20 years in various locations throughout the mainland Mm -hmm. and now here on Oahu. What are some common causes of chronic pain in the people that you help? Just a a general outline there. 
you name the part of the body, and you can you can notice a, a problem there in the head. You'll have headaches. On uh, your digestive system, you can have irritable bowel syndrome or various other kinds of problems or pancreatitis, uh, certainly neck and back problems. Um, fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia, which are more neurological problems. Uh, they, they just all vary as to their source, but the thing they all have in common is, uh, and actually in the medical literature, it's called the chronic pain syndrome. They all create a certain similar set of uh, reactions a person goes through. What are those reactions? Uh, a number of things. Uh, uh, psychological reactions. People will become highly stressed. They'll become uh, depressed or anxious. Very normal. Um, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you one other uh, cause of chronic pain. Unknown. The cryptogenic, we're not sure, idiopathic group. Just because the physician cannot determine physiologically What's going on does not mean you are not dealing with chronic pain. Okay. Well, and anybody who hears those words, idiopathic or cryptogenic, it's our medical word for saying, oh, we don't know. We have no idea. That's all it is. They, just because they don't know doesn't mean that you are not dealing with a real problem. Very if true. Any, if I see anybody in chronic pain, they say they're in chronic pain, I believe them. In fact, when I do what groups. What a novel approach. You believe them. Okay. In groups, uh, uh, when I do my group, I, I say, okay, raise your hand if you're dealing with real pain. And people look at me funny. They raise their hand. And I said, no one will ever ask you that again here. We believe you totally. You know, That's a good way to start it off, too, because I think, you know, a lot of people feel as though they're not they're not being treated fairly. They're being discriminated against. They're being looked at as a druggie, as somebody who's just trying yeah. to get medication. They don't deserve to have it. Or, you know, there's a suspicion about them. This past October, you know, looking nationwide at the most abused medications, Vicodin was on the list. So the DEA, federal and local, decided to make that particularly medicine a Schedule II, yeah. which requires a different approach, physically getting a prescription, no refills. There's, there's some people who require drug testing, make sure you're on it. All these different sorts of barriers to treating pain. And sometimes I think for... The 99% of people who do it correctly, we legislate for the 1% of people who don't. Precisely, and that's very frustrating because even though I'm a psychologist, I train people in things you can do to change your nervous system and help you feel better, I support what I call a, a pills and skills approach, a balanced approach that a certain amount of uh, medication and even opiates can be helpful uh, in helping a person move through life more comfortably. So now let's talk a little bit about how your approach is different than the traditional approach. So in my world, if somebody comes, you know, just a few days ago, I saw somebody who said, I have chronic pain and I see this pain doctor and this is the medicine I take. And so there's a relationship where they go in, they say, I'm still in pain. They get a prescription. They walk out. They have a month's supply. They know every month exactly when they have to follow up and get more medication. It seems like there's not really any other approach other than here's your pills, how are you doing, mm -hmm. there's your prescription, see you in a month. What do you do that's different? Well, I will say that just very simply, if the person is fine on three Norco a week or whatever, if, if they are living life, there's uh, one doctor I, I worked with who's really great, Texas, she said, uh, if I'm giving opiates and the person is functional and they're doing okay, fine. However, there are people that even on the level of medication that's safe to take, they're still not comfortable enough. 
So generally, so that's your target. Yeah, there are okay. three approaches uh, I've noticed. One is the usually a medical approach, which is we want to help the person avoid the pain. Let's, we're going to focus on giving you medication or a procedure or whatever to help it go away. A second approach is by um, uh, what I'll call acceptance therapists that basically say uh, that you should really accept the pain, just let it be there, and don't do anything about it and develop personal values and, and practices. That's a good approach, and it's got some good data behind it. The problem is I don't see that many people who are, want to accept the pain. It's very difficult to do that. The third approach is classic cognitive behavioral pain management. Let us show you ways you can cope with the pain and manage it. Uh, those are all fine. The problem is, what do they all do? They all focus you on pain. Either you're avoiding it, or you're accepting it, or you're managing it. And as we know from uh, the world of um, what's called neuroplasticity, um, that you can do things in the world to change your brain. And if you make changes in your brain you can actually get more comfortable. So what I'm uh, proposing is instead of trying to avoid pain, let it be there, but do things that you can to raise your mood, essentially, or I call raising your comfort level. That is focusing instead of on pain, focusing on positive feelings, positive activities. And we find that when you start doing that and automatically raise your mood up, move away from negative thoughts, it starts to change your brain. As you change your brain, your nervous system becomes less sensitive to pain. And people that do this, either one of two things happens. Either they say, I feel pain relief. And we know the research shows 30 to 50% uh, using these techniques. On the other hand, some people say, you know, the pain's still there. But it's not bothering me in the same way. It's bothering me less, okay? The techniques that I show people are from pain management, cognitive behavioral pain management. But instead of trying to manage the pain, it's to do things to raise your comfort around the pain. So the last little part of this answer is to give that analogy I told you before. Imagine you're stuck in a room. And you're sitting by a pile of pillows. And there is a speaker in the corner of the room blasting the worst music you ever heard. You're going nuts. And so you see the pillows. You grab a pillow. You throw it on top of the speaker. It muffles it a little. Oh, that's so much better. But you haven't changed the screaming under the pillow. But it doesn't matter because you've muffled. You throw more pillows. It muffles it more. That's an example of feeling comfortable around the pain that, that even if it's there, it doesn't have to bother you in the same way. Now, you mentioned talking about focusing on where you want to go, what you want to do. Comfort is your approach. You know, it makes me think of years ago, one of my mentors, when I was in training, said, you know, and he was this he was this older guy. He was in his 70s. And he said, what I like to do in my free time is I like to drive race cars. And I always thought to myself, really? You're I'm driving race cars? And he said to me, you know, if you see an accident ahead of you, focus your body on where you want to go. Don't look at the accident as if you're going to go try and avoid it. Focus your whole self on where you're headed because you will generally bring yourself to that direction. And, you know, even when you're riding a bike, you know, don't look at the stone that you're trying to avoid. You're going to find yourself hitting that stone and getting a flat mm -hmm. tire. Mm -hmm. Focus on the area of road that's clear so that you don't wind up hitting the pothole. So it sounds like, you know, you could focus on the pain. You could focus on the pothole. You could wind up in it. Or you could refocus yourself to say, here's the path I want to go. I want to find 
ways that I can be comfortable. Now, we use a different scale. You know, very often in these days, there have been mandates where doctor's offices, and I'm sure anybody who's seen a doctor gets asked this question, are you in pain? Can you tell me where the schedule, where the where it is on a scale of 1 to 10, 0 or 0 to 10? 0 is no pain. 10 is the worst pain of your life. And what you do is look at the scale from a different perspective, yeah. not as not as singular and not focusing on pain. Right. How would you approach that differently? Instead of saying to someone, mm-hmm. what's your pain level, 1 to 10, sure. how do you approach it? Well, again, with uh, this notion of the race car driver, there's this old wise saying that says, uh, wherever you're focused, that's where you are. And so, it's wise and it's true. So okay. that's why I created what I call the comfort scale. Okay, so if you imagine a scale where you have zero and you go down from the zero, negative one, negative two, down to negative 10, and then you go up positive one, all the way up to positive 10. So zero is what you felt when there was no chronic pain in your body. On an average day, you didn't feel great, you didn't feel terrible. Negative 10 all the way at the bottom is feeling incredibly uncomfortable around the pain. Okay, so you're feeling very uncomfortable. Positive 10, I call the James Brown line, I feel good, okay? And, in fact, I did this with a, a fellow, an older fellow who is a, um, an engineer, and he took this scale, and he was using hypnosis, which he practiced a lot. He felt so good, he moved the top up to, like, a positive 940 by the time he was done. He felt really and, good. And he felt really good. So I'll show this to people and say, where do you think you are at this point? So if the person is, let's say, a negative 7, that's a pretty, you know, hefty uh, level of discomfort. And then we'll do some things, and then they often notice that it has gone up. What's gone up is not the pain, their comfort level. So maybe they're a negative four. They're feeling more comfortable. And so that's, really that's, is reframing. That exactly. is the goal is to notice your comfort level. And you don't have to rush it. It takes time. Some people have been dealing with chronic pain for 10, 20 years. And Rome wasn't built in a day. But I got to tell you, when you start tapping into the powers of your brain and your mind, I know we'll probably talk about hypnosis later. That's one way to do that. But a lot of the other skills also, that um, you will find that unbelievable, surprising experiences can happen where your comfort goes up. Well, and it reminds me about a book I read called Outliers. I think Malcolm Gladwell where he writes these really interesting, I guess they're in the genre of pop psychology books. And he wrote this book called Outliers. And essentially what he was saying kind of adopted this theory of neuroplasticity. And he said, you know, it's not like Steve Jobs suddenly created a computer and it, you know, decided that he was going to run Apple and it happened overnight. It's not like Bill Gates started programming and became a genius. Right. It's not like Andre Agassi just picked up a tennis racket and was like a perfect at tennis. These people put in thousands of hours to get to this point that they actually increased the, if you look physically, and we talked about functional MRI earlier, you can actually see that there are more fibers between the nerve cells in their brain for a certain skill. And so the more that you do that skill, the greater the chance is that you are enhancing your body's ability to become an expert at that skill. That's the whole theory of neuroplasticity. Now, you have some interesting things that you describe, sort of your the pills and skills approach. Pills is one approach. Skills is another approach. And you've got a set of like 36 different skills that people right. can work on to help them to increase their comfort. Tell me a little bit about those skills. It starts with noticing. 
Yes, noticing is definitely uh, a central. In fact, I make a little wheel in the center is noticing. And that is, uh, and uh, just to preset this, um, you can use skills by doing things, as you said. You can make changes in your brain to make changes in your comfort level. That's why I call these comfort skills. So noticing is uh, so often you'll get a pain flare and it feels like it comes from nowhere. You know, and, and you get shocked and depressed, and all of this makes it worse. Noticing is starting to notice what are the triggers. So one woman had terrible migraines, and unfortunately she was in a terrible relationship with her husband, and noticed after an argument she would get a migraine. Arguing with her husband is a trigger. But also noticing first signs. Uh, so another person noticed that uh, when they were getting upset about something uh, that didn't go well— their stomach started hurting, okay? So the first sign of that is they're starting to feel upset about something. And so as soon as they notice they're upset, then they can draw on the other skills to calm themselves and change their body. So noticing's in the center. Mm -hmm. What are some of these other skill techniques that kind of, Mm -hmm. if people were to, to make this in a, into a picture, mm-hmm. you'd put noticing in a little right. in the little center, and then you draw a circle around it, and you'd have these other areas, kind of like a pie. Yeah, what other, are these other pieces? Five other categories. Just one last word about noticing. What I just that mentioned was noticing negatives. Noticing a positive is noticing something that is happening in life that you want to see more of. In fact, the question I ask uh, my patients is, what have you noticed lately, large or small, that you'd like to see more of happen? It's already happening. And as you start noticing that, it starts to happen more. Uh, So at the top of this wheel is refocusing. What happens is um, a lot of us know are familiar with relaxation techniques like meditation, visualization, hypnosis, body relaxation. All of these were called relaxation techniques, but that's the result. Really, what are you doing? You are refocusing your attention because it's easy to get distracted by pain, by negative thoughts, just by anything. So if a person is doing, let's say they're doing uh, a simple uh, following their breath, and they're noticing the feeling of their breath going in and out of their belly, and suddenly they start thinking about chocolate cake, and gee, wouldn't it be great to have a piece of that? What am I doing for dinner? And all these thoughts are distract. These are distractions. And when you notice you're distracted, you simply let it go and come right back to feeling the breath going in and out of your belly. Like a meditation. Meditation is a, a similar. It's another refocus. I call them all refocusing skills. So, again, and um, I, I may have told you before, I, I'm writing this book. I'll hopefully be done soon called You're Bigger Than the Pain. And it's a, a, a basically a workbook on how to do these skills. And so laying that out as one of that category is a way to start taking back your life and calming yourself. So that's the refocusing skills in a nutshell. Moving skills are how to move through certain uh, activities in your life, like sleep, really huge subject. So many people in chronic pain are having problems with sleep, and it makes it worse. If they don't have enough sleep, it makes their, their body feel worse. So a set of sleep skills that you can use. Also how to move through pain flares, um, how to move into physical activity in a way that doesn't hurt your body. So that's a, a sense of the moving skills. A fourth category is enjoying skills. It comes from a field called positive psychology, which is fabulous. Positive psychologists studied people, can you believe it, people who are happy. I mean, let's just bottle that and everybody gets them. Really, really. People are happy. And that's what they did. They sort of bottled it. They, they derived what are some things people do. They created exercises. And so laughing. 
Now, don't be frightened. <laughs> oh, boy, was that fake. But guess what? It made me want to laugh. I, that's right. I'm feeling a rush in my body, and it's probably endorphins, okay? Because when you do laughter, you raise your mood, and you start to numb the pain, all right, and distract from the pain. Doing things you enjoy, but doing them in a way that fits your body. These are enjoying skills. You could even do something I call countering a negative with a positive. You have a bad argument with someone, you have a list of 10 things you can do almost immediately that you enjoy. Do one, no matter how you feel, because it'll start to raise your mood. So those are the enjoying skills. Uh, Rethinking skills, the fifth category, are kind of classic cognitive behavioral skills, changing negative thoughts. So a guy comes up to a woman and says, I got this amazing thing in my hand. His, his fist is closed. You want to see it? It'll change your life for the better. She says, what is it? She says, come on. So she follows him down the street. He walks up to another guy and says, I have this amazing thing in my hand. It'll make her life better. It'll make your life better. You want to see it? He says, yeah. Now he's got two people following him. He picks up a third, a fourth. He's got 10 people going up, down one another street. Finally, they corner him. They say, what is it? He opens his hand. Nothing. Ha! He laughs. He runs away. That's what a negative thought is. It's nothing. A thought is absolutely nothing unless you follow it. My life is over. You follow that thought? Your life gonna, really could be over. Yeah, it's going to take you to depression land. So, so the rethinking skills are how to stop negative thoughts from affecting you. In other words, catch them before uh, they catch you. The final category is relating. Relationships are so important. If you ha- So many people in chronic pain just stop relating with people for really good reasons. You know, They're in chronic pain. The they last just, thing you want to hear sure. even from your best friends is, how do you feel? You yeah, because they want to hear you say, I feel great. I'm fine today. They probably don't want to hear you talk about exactly. your pain again and how much you're affected by Because it. what happens when you say, how do you feel? Now you have to start paying attention to pain. Right. Okay. And, and you can train those people. Just say, ask me about the football game. Ask me anything but that. You know? So those are people who you already know and love in your life. But there are people that are isolated. And so I, well, some of the, the relating skills are how to build a social life again on your terms. Secondly is what do you do about annoying people? Yeah, I don't know any annoying people right. at all. <laughs> annoying people will raise your pain level. And the way I like to frame it is that um, uh, I like to see chronic pain actually not as something you have. Okay, I'm not saying you don't have it. But it doesn't help to think you have it. I got this in my body. I can't do anything about it. It's very depressing. Instead of thinking I have pain, you might find it useful to think I have a relationship with pain. Imagine pain's like this bad guy outside of you sending uncomfortable feelings in your body and negative thoughts into your head. And he's dominating. For a lot of people, he dominates that relationship. But when you use these skills, you can start taking back that relationship. So back to a person, like an annoying person, it's as if they're working with pain against you. So, you know, one guy comes home, and he was a nurse, and his wife was dealing with fibromyalgia. And he says, you haven't cleaned anything in the house today. She said, well, I was having a flare. I don't care, you know, and he's, he's being annoying like that. It's like he's working with pain. They're ganging up on her because now what he's saying to her, since he is her soulmate, he is affecting her, depressing her, and the, she gets more sensitive to pain, gets more upset. The better couples that I've noticed are the ones who have come to class and not only the person in pain is there, but their, their spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, they are working together. They're allies working together against pain. 
and more for comfort. So I go over some skills in this category and how you can set limits with annoying people and develop more positive relationships with others. So let's use that example of the nurse who comes home, says to the male nurse, comes home, says to his wife, how come nothing's done? She's got fibromyalgia. How could she relate to him as an annoying person in such a way that it would help the situation rather than make her feel like she's inadequate, like she's depressed, like she's going down that pathway. Oh, God, I hope you – I was hoping you'd ask that question. Well, and there you go. Okay. So there's two ways. Uh, essentially, you want to set a limit, okay? Um, you want to set a limit because what an annoying person – and these are people we know and love. They're not necessarily evil. Some are more than others. But you want to set a limit uh, because um, if you don't, uh, you will get – you will become more miserable. So there's a direct and an indirect way to set this limit. Uh, one, two, three. You ask yourself, first of all, what do I want? So here this person is haranguing her. She asks herself, what do I want? I want him to stop talking to me like that. This is what she's thinking in her head. When do I want it to happen? Right now. Right now. And what am I going to do if it doesn't happen, if I don't get it? Okay. This is the critical piece. There's so many people want to reason with that person. And when a person's being an annoying person, they are not reasonable. It's like hitting your head against the wall. So she can do a simple um, one technique, which is to um, uh, give the person the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, uh, I need you to stop talking to me like this, or I may need to walk away. Something as simple as that, okay? And if the person says, oh, I'm sorry, you know, and Restores that relationship, absolutely. Then, because what do you have that is worth so much in the world? Attention. If you give them attention for the right things, they will do the right things. If, in the case of this young woman, she gave her husband a lot of attention, whether she was arguing back or listening to him, taking in that that stuff, oh, my God, Uh, it hurt her, right? So if she can, you can remove your attention. That's the direct way. Sometimes it's hard to do direct for some people. In this young woman's case, it, it was difficult. And this might sound a little manipulative, but it worked for her, is I suggested something different because uh, it's called the indirect way, okay? So he's haranguing her, what's the matter with you? And she looks at him for a while, and then slowly she starts to look down on the ground. And she sighs. And then he, often he'll, he'll say, what, what, what's with you? She said, I don't know. Suddenly, I just don't feel good. What? You're saying I'm not making you feel good? No, no, it's not you. I don't know what it is. I got to go lay down. I'll talk to you later. And then she turns around and walks away. She was totally acting. But she got herself away from what I call his toxic talk. Because toxic talk, when someone's criticizing you or manipulating you, okay, putting you down, invalidating you, that turns into poison in your system. And you probably know better than most that, well, how does that happen? How do words become poison? Well, you get stressed out, and then you get pumped up with cortisol and other stress hormones, and that makes the pain worse and oh so many other things worse. And if this happens day after day after day, it can create stress-related diseases. So this, Sure, blood this pressure, ha- cholesterol, so, heart attack, strokes, you so name it. So she indirectly yeah. was able to get away from him mm-hmm. and didn't start an argument because she didn't blame him. She just said, sorry, I don't know why. I just suddenly, I just don't feel. And she walked away, all right? Sometimes you can just do it indirectly, really say a non sequitur and walk away. 
So in this case, the guy said, you didn't clean the house. You didn't do this. And she says, oh, my God, the moon is blue. And she walks away. <laughs> totally nonsensical. You know, totally okay. non- nonsensical. But the idea when you're dealing with annoying people uh, is to get away from the toxic talk. And the most important thing, and it's kind of small in here, so I can't do what I do in my classes. I sit in a chair. I stick my feet up in the air, and I say, these are the most important parts of your body when you're dealing with an annoying person. Your Why? feet. Your feet. Because they need to walk you away from their mouth. Because the more you listen to this kind of talk, the more you're likely to take it in. And not just walk away. You walk towards something good. So you've already planned this, that you go take yourself out for some coffee. Take yourself out to a movie. Go visit a friend. So this is, again, reversing, uh, countering a negative with a positive. Go do, because you're going to carry that argument with you, and it replays in your head. You need to do something to raise your mood up. And this is not just for people in pain, but in general, it really impacts people in pain. This is why I'll tell my colleagues, I'm actually just doing general psychology. I'm doing everything a psychologist does. But the difference is I'm working with people who, when, when they have uh, uh, upsets, it makes their body worse. And so they can help their physical body feel better as they do a number of these things. Well, and to give credit to the annoying people, they're not always annoying. These are people you no. know and love. Absolutely. They may have reasons why they're stressed from, sure. you know, their experience at work, et cetera. And Actually, so can I interrupt they you just always for a have to be annoying. There is, then there's the seriously annoying person. And that's a case where this happens every day. They're not reasonable. And in that case, you may need to take an action either to try to fix the relationship, mostly by going to therapy, uh, or uh, leave the relationship. Sure. If it's a boss, you can leave the job. If it's or, or Mary, a friend, you, know, you, you have can to be no careful. longer be hanging out with right. them. Okay. Oh, and there's a third option, which may not sound like an option, but that's to do nothing. Just live with it. And some people choose to just live with that misery, and you know, it's not up to me to tell them what to do. But you either fix it, leave it, or just live keep with everything it. the same. Live with it the same. You know? So it's, it's, these are choices. Well, and a lot of what you described, you know, you as you mentioned, it is general psychology. Your patient population happens to be those who are experiencing chronic pain. Mm-hmm. It could just as easily be a, you know, in my case, I may have a lot of patients who have diabetes or right. people who have high blood pressure, or people mm-hmm. who have high cholesterol. I do general medicine, but hey, I have certain areas that I see a lot of. In your case, right. this is who you see a lot of. Now, tell me, you referenced hypnosis earlier as one of the skills and tools that you use in your practice to try and help people to really figure out a way to reframe, refocus, and and try and find the comfort of what's going right in their lives. Hypnosis is sort of a mystery to me. You know, I, boy, I think I've seen it once. It's like a gimmick thing. It's some entertainment show, and some guy's like, cluck like a chicken, and the guy gets up and clucks like a chicken. And, <laughs> and that's like, you, you referenced earlier, like hypno-entertainment. That's not really true hypnosis. Tell me a little bit more about that process of hypnosis, because that can be an integral part in your management for people helping to find their comfort. Chronic pain people can get better Mm -hmm. with hypnosis. Absolutely. How does hypnosis work? And and tell me about the steps and what might somebody expect if they say they wanted to try it. You know, base rate, we don't know what hypnosis is. We don't know exactly what it is. So people make up theories. And they have a lot of data to back some of these theories, okay? But the way I like to consider hypnosis, all right? Well, actually, let me back up for a sec. Some people say hypnosis is a special state. You go into a trance, 
and it's different than anything else you do, okay? On the opposite side are people that say hypnosis is just a relationship between you and the hypnotist, uh, and it's just basically a social cognitive experience, all right? It has nothing to do with the trance. I like what uh, the late Milton Erickson was a great psychiatrist in America who revolutionized our understanding of hypnosis, how he described it. Hypnosis is something that we go into all the time. We go in and out of it all the time. Did you ever have a time that you're driving across a bridge, talking with a friend, you get across a bridge, you don't quite remember the trip across the bridge? Oh, like going home all the time, sure. Right. You don't remember the trip from the studio back home. Who was driving the car? You have to have been, sure. Exactly. Your inner mind was driving the car. So we go into these sort of trance states naturally. Um, So one way to think about hypnosis uh, pragmatically is it's a skill. You can learn how to do it. It's a way to access uh, potential in your brain and your mind to make interesting things happen or really to allow interesting things to happen. So little kids are easily going to trance. You probably know your kid falls down, scrapes their knee, cries. You give them a big squeeze, put a Band-Aid on it, and then they're off playing the ball game again. Well, But that, that cut is still generating pain signals. How could they do that? Because they use their own internal ability to distract and dissociate away from that pain. All right? So it's a natural ability. And all I do when I'm teaching people hypnosis is to show them how to do it on purpose because all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. Even when I train you, you're the one who's making it happen. So there's there's generally three stages to hypnosis. You know, you've talked about... Three, three actions. Three actions. Right. So, so what are these actions that people would need to take if they were considering hypnosis? Because let's say you're the hypnotherapist and you've decided, okay, this is an adjunct to my treatment for this individual. What are these stages and how do you go about it? Not everybody could be hypnotized. Actually, Erickson felt they could. Okay. Uh, Some people, it it has to do with the relationship with the hypnotist, really. Um, Because I have hypnotized people who told me that very thing. I've tried and no one's hypnotized me. And now they're doing it just fine, okay? So uh, it's true. Some people, their brains are structured in a way that it's easier for them to go into trance, okay? Uh, others of us have to work a little harder at it. It's like anything else. It's a skill. Some people can drive a car easily. Others, we have to take some... Other uh, people need practice and l- deny it? Yes, and they need to okay. deny it, right? Okay, so let me back up for a second and say all the re focusing skills, meditation, um, relaxation, imagery, all of that kind of stuff involves two actions, okay? The first I call letting go and relaxing. You let your muscles go. You sit down. You relax in the seat. Let go. Let your thoughts come and go. Just let them be there. Uh, Try not to follow them all the time. You know, it's it's a challenge, but just let let go. You do that combined with the, the second step, which is Focusing on one thing. So if I sat and just followed my breathing, the feeling of my breath going in and out of my belly, or I count my breaths up to 10 and then start over with one each time they go out, that's focusing on one thing. You put those two together, letting go and focusing on one thing, and you create what the the great psychiatrist um, and researcher Herbert Benson called the relaxation response. Your body starts changing in a good direction. It's very healthy. 
Yeah, blood pressure goes down, you relax. Okay, it's wonderful. That's all of these techniques. Hypnosis does those two and adds one more step, and that is you take in ideas. Okay, this is in part what makes it not meditation. You're purposely taking in ideas. So you're sitting there, and I may do something like this. You're sitting and relaxing, so you're letting go right now. And, and uh, don't worry, folks, I promise I won't hypnotize her right now. But <laughs> That could be kind of fun and, and interesting. You never know what I'd you say. You never but know okay, what you, you say go. there. Uh-oh. Probably not much. But, but you're sitting relaxing, and then uh, you're focused on my voice. So that's the one thing you're focusing on, my voice. And then I say, I'm not sure which one of those arms might start to feel just a little lighter and really pleasant. It might be your left arm or your right arm might even be part of your arm. might be your left elbow or your right pinky. Now, those are all ideas. And if you're sitting there relaxing, letting go in the chair, you're focusing on my voice, then there's a good chance those ideas are going to go inside. You're going to take those in. But you're going to take those in the way that works for you. And most people, when I do this, one of those arms starts to feel nice and light and pleasant. But, for example, I did this with a fellow. He went into a very deep trance came out. Actually, his pain level was really low. And I said, uh, so how did your arms feel? He said, eh, nothing special, but my left leg felt really great. So in his brain, again, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis, his inner mind took those ideas and translated them into a, a, a nice feeling leg instead of the arms. Okay. So that's, in a way, one way to understand hypnosis is as a skill, you sit and relax you focus on the voice of the hypnotist, including if you're hypnotizing yourself, your own internal voice. And you take those ideas in and allow the experience to happen. You don't have to do very much. You're really sitting back and relaxing. and It just kind of happens in its own way. So you could hypnotize yourself. I mean, Absolutely. part of what you said is you focus on the voice of the hypnotist. But if you get really good at this skill and you become able to do so, you said you could listen to your own internal voice. We're doing it all the time, you know, uh, in different ways. A person is going for a job interview, and they're really nervous. And later on, they might notice. They might not notice in the moment. Later on, they notice, I was talking to myself. Okay, come on, calm down. It's going to be okay. I did that other one. They're talking to themselves in their mind. Yeah, there's that little voice that goes on a lot of the day. That's right. That's right. And when they're doing, and it calms themselves down, that is a form of what I'm talking about. Okay, it's a natural function. We all do it. I'm just talking about doing it on purpose, and we we give it a name. We call it hypnosis. People may have other names for it, but um, this is one way that it works. And again, with chronic pain, lots of research in chronic pain that shows that hypnosis is. Uh, Hypnosis does a lot of things for a lot of different problems, but hypnosis is the one that it most consistently helps with. And I think you mentioned earlier, like 30 to 50% of people could notice some improvement. Well, actually, no, what I said is um, when you're using the skills, and that's hypnosis and a lot of All other the skills, skills. Okay. Uh, especially if you're in a multidisciplinary program. So you're doing a movement class, you're starting to get help there, you're getting the proper level of medication and treatment from a physician. It's the um, interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary pain program, uh, which I'm creating right now in Kailua. Um, But um, people will experience, on average, 30 to 50 percent relief from a lot of the research that I've reviewed. So you used to do this through other venues, 
Kaiser, the VA system. I didn't work in the VA system, but but uh, but they had this they chronic. Have, they do this they interdisciplinary do. team, right? Right. And you know, one of the reasons that you're not working in those areas is because you wanted to bring this to the rest of us because there's a lot of people out there in chronic pain. They may not have access to this sort of a multidisciplinary approach. Let's talk about who's on the team. We've alluded to it. You said a, a physician, maybe like a like an internist or a pain specialist who prescribes medicine, right. physical therapy, or some type of movement specialist clinical psychologists like yourself, does that make up the team? Are there other members they, that are needed? They differ, but a, a lot of them have that in common, the three basic professions. But, you know, they'll include also acupuncturists and nutritionists. There's all kinds of folks. Uh, but the, the, the three are a, a physician who will manage mostly the medication, and in some places they, they help the person come completely off or partially off but they manage the medication. Uh, a second is um, the phys- a physical therapist who will do some hands-on physical therapy, but most of the time it's... Um, kind of the movement yeah. that you were talking about earlier, sort of let's get the body going. Yeah, so they'll do a, a general movement class, uh, and, to, and you know they'll have uh, OT, you know, occupational therapist, come in and show, how do you vacuum so you don't hurt your back? You know, how do you do physical activities so that you can protect your body, but also get it back into shape because so many people in chronic pain are out of shape. And finally, and probably I'm biased, I think one of the most important component is what the psychologist does because we do pain education. We do education on, and for me, it's, it's comfort skills education. What can you do to change your nervous system to desensitize your body? to feel better, you know, and to get back to life. Um, what I'm doing right now in Kailua um, is uh, working with one insurance company, and, but, but it's to coordinate this. So in my clinic, uh, Kailua Comfort Clinic, uh, I'm going to coordinate with your physician. So let's say you come in. Uh, so I don't have a physician, although I'll have one uh, that I will consult with. But uh, the main physician is your physician who I'll work with on just coordinating. Uh, and then I will bring in uh, a functional restoration specialist, like a physical therapist or Feldenkrais or other people, probably some nutritionists as well, to provide some training for that. And then I will do the, the main body of the training, uh, these skills, skills training. Plus, there's nothing like being in a group of folks that have a lot in common with you. Because, you know, it's, isn't it true when you're out there, you're dealing with chronic pain, Better or worse, you are made to feel or you feel abnormal. You feel weird. You feel crazy sometimes. And you're not. And well, you're being in, in that group, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. With people in a similar circumstance. You know, they've talked about group classes for all different medical mm-hmm. conditions. Could diabetes group classes work? Mm-hmm. We know cancer has support groups for individuals who are suffering from cancer and their loved ones. That idea that you're not alone. Exactly. You're that in it's the group. not just you. Not only that, but in the group, and it's not just training. Uh, the therapy piece is people will talk about their experiences and pe- other folks will become inspired. Like this one young woman had arachnoiditis, really a lot of pain in her back, okay? 36 years old, had a family, very depressed. She wasn't doing anything in life. We talked about, well, what do you like to do? She said, I love going to movies, but I can't go to movies because I can only sit for 15 minutes and I have to stand up. And she felt embarrassed. I have to stand up and down. So... uh I believe you can do almost anything, okay? You can't maybe 
climb a, a mountain right now if you're dealing with back problems. But you can get back to a lot of the things you used to do. You just need to do them differently. So I talk with her, how could you go to the movies differently? And why am I making a big deal about the movies? Because it, she loves it, and it raises her mood and lowers her misery, which will then help her body. So we figured it out. She went in the middle of the week, early in the day. No one's in the theater. She, she goes to the theater. She, she goes to some theaters. I'm not sure if Hawaii has these, but there are some theaters with really cool seats, like recliners. She sat there. She got up and down every 15 minutes. She stayed for two movies. It was that. That's what made the she, difference. She was not depressed that day. She was doing and she just went up from there so she's in a group and she's talking about this in the group everyone's getting inspired the next week people come in and other people are doing activities they hadn't done in a long time just made it fit their body instead of their body having to fit the activity you do it differently to fit your body and that really sounds like that's the idea is that a lot of us you know we talk about making quote accommodations for folks and in fact sometimes you need to make an accommodation for yourself and you talked a little bit about recognizing if you if you know what is going to trigger your pain if you know that you're going to go do something that's going to cause you to have discomfort what you can do to prepare in advance kind of like this woman noticed movies i love i'm going to go when there's nobody else there and i can take my time sit stand and not feel uncomfortable if some because if she were to sit for 2 hours it would trigger her pain mm-hmm. if somebody knew that they were going to do an activity that was going to trigger their pain how can they prepare for that? Oh, that's great. I'm glad you asked that. So I'm, when I'm teaching the moving skills about uh, how to get back to activities, there's pay as you go. Pay as you go is, is ba- classic pacing. You know, okay, I'm going to go to the movie, but I'm going to make sure to get up and down like she did. So she only did the, act, the, the stressful piece for a certain period of time, and that way she avoided a flare-up, and you want to avoid flares. A second option, what if you want to do the whole enchilada? So I call this uh, the payment plan. You know, you get the couch now, you pay for it later. So in this case, um, uh, you can, I ask the person, okay, do three things and you can do whatever you want. Okay. The first step is plan to have a flare up. Plan in advance. Just plan you it. Know I you're am going to do an activity. So this, there you go. This woman wanted to go to Marine World with her uh, her family. This is uh, a wonderful uh, place. You walk around for about three hours. She had low back and knee pain she was dealing with. So she decided, I want to be with my family. It's worth it. I'm going to plan to have a flare-up. And then she did two other things, and that helped her write it out better. The first thing was to delegate so that you can recover. And so many people will f- have a flare and then they'll keep working and they'll get the mother of all flares. And that's really terrible. So to prevent that, you delegate your responsibilities after you do the, the strenuous thing. So she was going to plan, when I go to Marine World, for two days I'm taking off. She had a great family. Kids were going to do her dishes, all that kind of stuff. She was going to lay and relax and The second thing you do in addition to giving yourself time to recover is you distract. So you you have a bunch of things that will give you good distractions, maybe a little bit of ice cream. That's my favorite. Uh, Sounds good right about that. Watching videos. You know, there's a – one of my patients came in one day and she brought a big boot box. She called it her comfort box. She says, I only open this when I'm having a flare. What's in the box? You so she me. opens the box. She's got, she's a religious woman. She had a Bible. She had some other books. She had some special DVDs. She had a little box of chocolates. She had a list of people to call. 
who she didn't have much time to call. So these are wonderful distractions. A list of, do you remember letter writing? I remember letter writing. You it's know? a long time ago. A long yeah. time. She had colored paper, colored pens. She would write letters. She also had a list of, uh, of um, web surfing, things she wanted to look up. So she had all these things to distract her. So you have a bunch of distractions. So this woman went to Marine World. She walked around for three hours. She was hurting by the end. Went to bed. Now, usually she would have been out for th- two days. She only was out for one day. The flare went away because she took care of herself. She distracted herself, and she was able to get through this. And so she had a flare, but it was worth it to her. So that's the payment plan. And so... If you can find your triggers, if you can identify what makes it worse, then you could prepare in advance. How can you get other people on board? You know, very often, I think, for a lot of folks who are suffering with chronic pain, they still have to keep a daily job. They still have to make a living. They have to go home, run a household, figure out a way to still be functional, Mm -hmm. and yet still have to deal with the fact that occasionally they're going to have a flare and they need to refocus and find a way to be more comfortable. How, how does somebody live their life and do this? Well, again, this is what I, I tell most of the clients I see. You know, there's two kinds of pain. There's, uh, if we're talking about chronic pain uh, clients, there's the pain in your body, but there's also the pain of change. Now, if the pain of your body is pretty considerable, then you're going to come see, seek my help. You're going to come work with me. You're going to make time in your life, and you're going to make some changes. Okay. Now, some people make simple changes, so they they stay with their job, but they make some changes that allow them to to do that job. Other people feel, you know, the pain of change is way too big. Uh, I can handle my body pain, no problem. Or maybe they don't say no problem, but still, they don't come to see me if they don't think they have a problem. Okay. Those people that feel, you know, I need to do something about this pain in my body. I need to get back. I want. I'm not happy with life. I would. And even more importantly, I'm miserable. I don't want this misery. And that I can help people with to find a way to lower that misery. Sometimes it takes small changes, you know, like the woman in the movie theater. And sometimes it's big changes. And I've worked with some people. And slowly they decide, you know, I can't be a construction worker anymore because my back is only going to get worse. Quick story. I work with a guy with a low back problem. He was a construction worker. He'd been off work for a year. He and his wife managed some properties, so they weren't going broke, thank God. And he said, you know, I'm tired of this. I am going back to work. I said, okay, listen, do me a favor. Talk to your wife first, and then come back next week and see me. He comes back next week. I say, so what happened? He says, I'm not going to go back to that work. I'm just going to manage properties. Really? Well, how come? Because my wife said she didn't want to push me in a wheelchair five years from now. That was effective. And that's the thing to be aware that, What do you want your body to be? What shape you want it to be five years from now? If you do that same job that is only damaging it, you know, why I see a lot of of people, it's unfortunate. I'm going to be in business for a long time, so to speak, okay? It's unfortunate because Americans work their fanny off. They work really, really hard. And unfortunately, in some companies, either allow that or you give them even more work than their bodies can handle, and the body's going to break down. So I work with people to try to find some way to take care of your body, take care of your, your responsibilities, and still get comfortable. Now tell us a little bit about the comfort clinic. So, so you are a behavioral medicine specialist, chronic pain psychologist, yeah. and you have established the comfort clinic. 
The Kailua Comfort Clinic. Kailua yeah. Comfort Clinic. So we know it's in Kailua. Yes. We on do. Oahu. And so tell me a little bit about how you structured that. Um, right now, I'm located in another uh, um, in a, a wellness center called Mindful Matters Wellness Center. Uh, it's in uh, downtown Kailua. And um, it's actually a beautiful little suite. It has a yoga room. And in fact, sometimes uh, I teach Tai Chi. And so I'll use that room to teach Tai Chi. And there are yoga teachers there. But uh, I'll probably be using that room to do a class. So the way I certainly will see people individually, but uh, as I um, work with them, I set up a, a wait list for the class or the workshop. It goes about eight weeks. And uh, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to do once or twice a week uh, just yet, but it's about an hour and a half. And I do the training in the comfort skills in that class. And it's something that insurance companies will cover. And so um, I'll also coordinate with, like I said, with their doctors uh, around uh, their treatment. And I will bring in a functional restoration, a couple of functional restoration specialists at some point uh, to work with them. But until I set up uh, my more intensive program right now, we working with me and uh, doing this training and working in a group of folks. I'll also have a second group for those that want to participate. It's an, I call it the comfort circle. It's an ongoing support group where we review the skills and just I uh, found when I was working in Kaiser and doing this group, people, strangely enough, people like to hang out with each other, you know. Uh, people who are dealing with chronic pain, they feel, I mean, I'll give you a, a, a little story. Um, one woman came into the class, and you can tell she was hurting. She was in probably an eight or nine pain flare. She put her head on the desk. Uh, I came up to her. I said, uh, you know, you can, you can go home if you're hurting too much today. She said, no, this is where I feel normal. When I'm with these people, I feel absolutely normal. So she stayed. So people really... Once they get to know each other, they, they support each other big time. Plus, I, it's not a complaining group. It's a group where we are trying to find ways to get comfortable because I know the people out there in chronic pain are not interested in drugs. They're not interested in procedures, even though they may go for some of that. They're interested in comfort. And if they could find it in a way that causes less side effects and less misery, they're going to do it. And so that's what we do in the class and, and the groups. Now, you mentioned something uh, very helpful. You said insurance companies generally do cover for some of these services. So if somebody were to say, I want to participate in this, they come to see me, they say, I want to go to Dr. Daniel Lev's Kailua Comfort Clinic. What do we do? How do I, how do I negotiate that and get them in to see you as a behavioral uh, as medicine a physician? specialist? Yeah. Uh, and as the patient, let's say somebody wants to say, I yeah, want to yeah. go to this, and they tell their doctor, mm -hmm. and the doctor says, I've never heard of this. What's this about? So w what's the next step? 808-633-6569. That's 633-6569. Call you guys. Call me. You could go to the website, but right now, unfortunately, uh, some malware hit it. And so it's it's down, but uh, it'll be up. But the, it'll be soon, it'll yeah. be back up. But the website's called Kailua Comfort Clinic, one word dot com. Uh, but you can always call me at that number, um, and um, the doctors uh, and a number of doctors. I did an outreach to doctors, mostly on the windward side, and a number of them would send me 
uh, uh, faxes with, you know, start that process. I do take uh, TRICARE, uh, United Healthcare, HMSA, HMAA, UHA. A lot Lots of, those of different yeah, insurances. Yeah, sure. I'm about okay. to get on Aloha Care. So um, I'm working on Medicare. I'm not on Medicare just yet, but a number of uh, insurance companies. So the doctor can call me. Uh, the folks who are in pain who want to talk the with me. The people can call you too. I'm sure. also online. Actually, I'm on the Psychology Today uh, Psychologist Directory. So you can just type in Dr. Daniel Lev, that's L-E-V as in Victor, and you'll find me. And so that's, if somebody really is having troubles, first step, talk to your primary care provider, call the phone number, look you up on the internet, find a way to to start addressing it. Because I think, sure. you know, earlier in the show, he said one in three pay- people could be having chronic pain. And what that alludes to is the fact that we may not be appropriately addressing this. And in my world, you know, if somebody says, I have pain, we do x-rays, we might find arthritis, we might find some sort of medical problem, neurologic condition, pinched nerve. And then the question comes up, what do you do next? And in the absence of medications or procedures or anything that could work, this is a very critical component Mm -hmm. to really complete that circle and find a way to create, maybe not in one physical space, mm-hmm. the actual team that you talk about, the multidisciplinary team, yeah. but maybe in a virtual space. Absolutely. So that yeah. this team can take place regardless of where right. they are. Right, right. And, and my, that can help. And my goal as a therapist is not to keep you working with me. My goal is to help you get back out there to life. It's not That's to be an in therapy. Point. It's to return right. to life and take these skills and live life. So, you know, it's not to be dependent in that way. Certainly, I, I see people, I've seen people for a long time, uh, but uh, most people will go on and use the skills and get back to life. The goal, which is mm-hmm. learn these skills, learn how to focus on comfort, learn how to redirect mm-hmm. where you're putting your attention. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, look where you want to go. And you probably don't want to hit the pothole. No. You don't want to have the big flare. Mm-hmm. How can you find comfort? And there's a lot of there's a lot of need that I see that we need to redirect how we help people in chronic pain. Stop making them feel like they're crazy. Absolutely. Stop making them feel like they have a problem. Take them seriously. Absolutely. And you said it in the very beginning. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to actually trust that, yes, this is what you're experiencing. I agree with you. This is what's happening. How can we help you moving exactly. it forward? Exactly. Well, I have to say I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. And if you want to talk to Dr. Daniel Lev or you're interested in the Kailua Comfort Clinic, you can give him a call, 808-633-6569. Now, if you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. You can follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook and get topics that are up and coming that we're going to be discussing. Our engineer today is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Koslovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week when we talk some more about medical topics that may just be important to you, too. That's going to be Monday at 5 right here on The Body Show. Thanks for listening.